Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Most of you are vaguely familiar with this chapter. We're going to unpack it and um, encourage each other to actually put it to work. So let me give you a little historical context. The Apostle Paul came to Corinth, we're in 1 Corinthians, uh, about the spring of AD 50, March, April of AD 50. He spent 18 months there, somewhere around September, October of AD 51. He finished his 18 months in Corinth and went to Jerusalem. Spent some time there, debriefed the apostles in Antioch, began his third missionary journey, and wound up spending three years in Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, as we talked about last time, is just across the Aegean from Corinth. Today, it's about 55 AD, so it's about four to five years since he first came to Corinth to found the city, and this church in Corinth is a mess. Whatever can go wrong in the Corinthian church has gone wrong. They're quarreling, they're fighting, they're arguing about which teacher is better. They're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I am of Christ. So there's a lot of egos at work in this church at this point in time. They've rejected God's word as authoritative in their life, and they're trusting their own human wisdom. They have a, a problem with, I know what I'm talking about. They're engaged in a lot of sexual misbehavior. Prostitution in the city of Corinth is extremely epidemic. This city is a city where vice is very, very common. Uh, they're getting drunk before they take the Lord's Supper, so it kind of gives you an idea of what kind of self-centeredness has been going on. There's a lot of sharp elbows in this church. They are taking each other to court and suing each other in public, secular courts of law. They're behaving just like the world, right? So there's a lot of issues going on in this church. And Paul gets word from a delegation from Corinth. They sail across the Aegean to Ephesus, and they say, we are in trouble, we need help. So Paul writes them a letter. 1 Corinthians is that letter. He wrote that letter about AD 55 from the city of Ephesus, and this letter is really broken up into two pieces. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is really taking them to task about their lack of unity, their divisiveness, their quarreling, their self-centeredness, their egos, etc. Chapter 7 through chapter 16, he really is addressing specific questions. And they write him about questions. They say, what about marriage and what about meat sacrifice to idols and in chapter 12 they have some questions about spiritual gifts they want to know how spiritual gifts work and what the point is and so paul begins to answer those questions in these chapters so in 12 to 14 these three chapters chapter 12 13 and 14 he's talking about spiritual gifts and he explains to them that god gave spiritual gifts through the holy spirit but they're misusing them. God gave them spiritual gifts in order to serve others, and they're exalting themselves with those same gifts. So the purpose of spiritual gifts is not to puff up yourselves, it's to serve others. And they're using these spiritual gifts to exalt themselves as opposed to using them to humbly serve brothers and sisters uh, in the faith. So at the very end of chapter 12, you can go back to chapter 12, uh, verse 31, Paul says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he segues into chapter 13 by saying, and I show you a still more excellent way. So now today we're going to talk about what that still more excellent way is in chapter 13. By any historical standard, 1 Corinthians 13 is a literary masterpiece. It describes love, the highest of all virtues, in language that is eloquent in any translation. 
This chapter often is pulled out of context and it's treated as a standalone document on love, which it can be done, but in reality, chapter 13 is just a parenthesis between chapter 12 and chapter 14 because he talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12, love in chapter 13, in chapter 14 he goes right back and picks up spiritual gifts, right? So what he's doing in chapter 13, or in chapter 12 rather, he's telling them that every member of God's family has been given a spiritual gift. Now that means you. I don't know if you know what your spiritual gift is, but all of you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit specifically for the work of service that God has called you to do. If you're not involved in a work of service, then you're not being obedient to what the Holy Spirit has gifted you for, and that gift is being wasted. One of the best ways that you can discover your spiritual gifts, and I'm going to put a plug in here, is to say yes when opportunities for service come up, right? It's not a big deal to say yes. Jesus said yes to the cross. We can say yes to being a care group leader. It just means seven, eight contacts a month. Most of you spend seven, eight contacts a day, right? So it's not a, not a major deal, but I'm going to encourage you, when an opportunity to serve comes along, say yes. Just say yes. Be amazed how God will bless you. So in chapter 13, Paul is emphasizing that no matter how wonderful spiritual gifts are, they're nothing unless they're exercised in love. Let's open the chapter. In the opening paragraph here of the first three verses of chapter 13, Paul is describing the preeminence of love. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Here's the principle. Love is the indispensable ingredient in the life of every Christian. I was going to say, accept no substitutes. And I thought, no, there are no substitutes. Love is the indispensable ingredient in the life of every Christian. There is no other substitute for love. No matter what else you have in your life, no matter what your spiritual gifts are, no matter how talented you are, no matter what your ministry is, if there is not love in your life, there's nothing. Paul is going to describe love for us using hyperbole. So he's giving us a hypothetical example, using himself, of someone who possesses spiritual gifts in a supremely ultimate expression. He's demonstrating that spiritual gifts without love are nothing, and he begins with tongues because the Corinthian church loved the gift of tongues. They valued it the most. The gift of tongues was a very showy, public gift, it brought attention to the individual who had it, and it exalted them. And if you didn't have this gift, they looked down on you in this church. So chapter 14 is going to tell us that the gift of tongues, that they called tongues, was really a public speaking to God using non-understandable sounds. Okay, it was kind of a, what you would call a heavenly prayer language. And Paul takes him to task on this because nobody can understand it. It's a non-intelligible language as they were practicing it. Now, tongues in Acts 
1 and 2 were intelligible foreign languages that, in fact, the speaker had never studied. And the fact that they could speak in a foreign language and they never studied was evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That was not what was at work here. This tongues were a private prayer language to God, and the Corinthians were exalting this. And Paul, in the first three verses, is going to take on three of the gifts that they value more than anything else. Paul is going to give you some hyperbole here, and he says, what if I could communicate, I was so spiritually gifted that I could speak every human language, all 6,919 of them, and I could even speak angelic languages. I know the dialect of heaven. He's giving you a hyperbole. He says, what about if I was so gifted? Paul says, without love, those supernatural communication skills are just noise. He says, they're gongs and cymbals. You ever been around a gong and a cymbal for any length of time? In high school, I was part of a band and, and our drummer would practice. <clears throat> That's painful to listen to after about 15 minutes, right? Just because they're banging away and they don't know what they're doing. Gongs and cymbals produce sounds, but no sense. They irritate you, but they don't necessarily educate you. And they would understand this because pagan worship ceremonies in, in the ancient world used gongs and cymbals as part of that ceremony. I have a friend of mine who's a Buddhist, and they still do that uh, in worship ceremonies. When we were in Japan, we certainly saw that at that point in time. So Paul says communication with love is edifying. Communication without love is irritating. Have you ever talked to somebody who was pretty obvious that they didn't care about you, but they were communicating with you or at you? That's the same thing he says. Communication with love builds up to communication without love irritates you. Now in verse 2, Paul's shifting from tongues and he's going to talk about prophecy and knowledge because the Corinthians thought the more you knew, the smarter you are, the smarter you are, the better you are, and you could look down at everybody else in the church family that didn't have your gift. So they were using gifts to separate themselves from each other as opposed to build each other up. And Paul says, Hypothetical example, what if I possessed all human knowledge? And what about if I possessed divine knowledge? What about if I've not only mastered all the libraries of the world, but what about if God has revealed the very mysteries of heaven to me? That's what he's saying in verse 2. And of course, the Corinthians had lots of knowledge, but they had no love. And Paul says, a loveless prophet is a useless prophet. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? Jonah, wonderfully gifted prophet. God called him to go to Nineveh, tell him 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown. If you don't repent, destruction comes. What happened? They repented. Amazing. And Jonah, of course, was thrilled at God's mercy. What did Jonah do? Went outside the city and waited for God to nuke him. And when God did nuke him, what did he do? He pouted. He got mad. It's like, Lord, trash these people, right? He didn't love, so he became useless as a prophet. Paul says, not only can you have knowledge and prophecy and no love, and it's no good, but if you have enough faith to move mountains. Jesus said, if you have enough faith as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. 
It's a metaphor for removing obstacles. It's a metaphor for doing miracles. Paul says, if you have enough faith to do bona fide miracles, heal people, cast out demons, but you're not motivated by love, what's it worth? Zero. Ever been around a really smart person who was convinced they were smarter than you? Not much fun to be around, right? Brains plus no love equals zero. Verse three, Paul talks about philanthropy. He says, suppose I'm the greatest philanthropist in the world. Suppose I have the gift of giving and I give everything away. I mean, I give everything away. I have not one penny left. I'm giving everything to feed the poor. And if my giving isn't motivated by love, it doesn't impress God. But let's suppose I have the gift of mercy. In its ultimate expression, the gift of mercy is the gift of martyrdom. Not only do I give up my money, I give up my very life. But it's not motivated by love. It's motivated by self-centeredness. We have people around the world that from time to time set themselves on fire for lots of reasons, but generally not for love. And Jesus, of course, says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So sacrifice of yourself is worthless unless it's motivated by love. Paul's giving you a very clear picture in the verse, the three verses, that love is preeminent. There is no substitute for love because the Corinthian church loved their spiritual gifts. They didn't love each other. They were using and misusing these gifts to give them status in the local church. And Paul says, love is more valuable than any spiritual gift. You can be a brilliant communication or an academic genius. You can be filled with faith and do miracles. You can be the ultimate Mother Teresa, but if you don't have love, it has no value. Now the next several verses, Paul is gonna describe the properties of love. And he's gonna give us 15 properties or characteristics of love. And he doesn't define love, but he describes love in such a way that we can discern it when we see it in action. And his whole point here is that love is not only indispensable, love is unmistakable. As we go through these verses, I want you to be thinking about and asking the Holy Spirit to talk with you about this, these areas of your life. There are some of you that have these and you're practicing them. And of course, when the Lord looks me in the eye and says, Brad, you have some work to do, I probably figure that you and I both do. So let's pick this up in verse four. 15 characteristics of love. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. Is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here's the principle. Love is the unmistakable brand mark of those who follow Jesus. Love is the unmistakable brand mark of those who follow Jesus. Our love for others reveals our Savior's love for the world. Your love represents his love. So, characteristic number one, love is patient. 
The church at Corinth was not patient. They were very impatient. They were very divisive. They were very much quarreling. They were suing each other in court. They had no patience with each other. The word patience here literally translates to put up with. To put up with. And I know there are spouses in this room that understand to put up with, right? Patience means you have a long fuse instead of a short fuse. It means you're long-tempered instead of short-tempered. You know who's got the longest fuse? God has a very long fuse. He's been putting up with us how long? Our whole life. God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, and he says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassion and graciousness, slow to anger. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is very slow to anger. Another human example of someone who's very long-suffering is David. Saul tried to kill David for how many years? Somewhere between 10 and 12 years. David had opportunity to kill Saul on more than one occasion. He didn't do it, did he? And actually, when Saul died, he showed kindness to one of Saul's relatives, Mephibosheth. Moses was rejected by Israel as their leader at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and yet when God was going to destroy the nation, he went to the top of the mountain and what? Prayed for them, interceded for them. That's patient love is interceding with God on behalf of someone who doesn't even like you. Matter of fact, they may hate you. So love is patient. Number two, love is kind. The Corinthian church is not kind. One of the things you're gonna notice all these descriptions of love, this church did not have. That's why he's talking about them. There's, these are not accidental. They're there because this church needed them and didn't have them. This Corinthian church was injuring each other, publicly criticizing each other. They were not kind. Kind means courteous. Kind means gracious. Kind means pleasant. So the passive side of love is patient. When you're injured, you restrain yourself you do not react. That's the passive side, patience. The active side of love is kindness. That's where you're initiating acts of kindness to someone else who doesn't like you, who may be hating you, who may be injuring you. So patience is the passive side of love, what you don't do. Kindness is the active side of love, what you do do in light of injury. So love is not just passively blind, love is actively kind. Patience puts up with a lot. Kindness gives out a lot. You get the picture? One's passive, one's active. Both require the Holy Spirit in order to practice. One example of kindness in Scripture is probably the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan walks on the Jericho Road up to, from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he sees this individual who's been attacked and left for dead, and he actively shows kindness to that man who's left for dead on the road. He doesn't passively walk by, he actively shows kindness. Matter of fact, we're commanded uh, in Ephesians 4.32, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted. And you say, well, what does that kindness look like? Well, it involves forgiveness, right? Is for, does forgiveness an active choice? That's not passive. To forgive someone who's injuring you requires activity. It requires intentionality. It requires choice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. 
So love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, does not envy. The church at Corinth was shot through with jealousy. Everyone was coveting someone else's gift. Let me define terms here. Jealousy says, you have it, I want it, I'm going to take it. That's jealousy. Envy is far worse. Envy says, you have it, I can never have it, I'm going to destroy it so you can't have it either. Get the difference? Jealousy wants what you have and it will steal it. Envy says, I can never have what you have, so I'm going to destroy it. So you can't have it either. We live in a culture that envy is loose in the land. Somebody else always has it better than us. The word envy literally means to boil. Love does not boil over when someone else is being successful. Jealousy is when someone is sorry over your success. That's jealousy, right? Envy causes me pain when you're having pleasure. You get the picture, what envy and jealousy are? People often desire what they don't have and despise what they do have. You remember uh, at the recent Olympics, we had a recent Olympic athlete that refused to wear the silver medal because her team lost the gold medal match in hockey. Didn't wear it, right? Most people would be thrilled with the silver medal, but for this person, it was gold or nothing. If I can't have gold, I'm going to pat. I don't want to take it. Scripture is filled with examples of the opposite of love is not jealous. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel, wasn't he? Because God accepted his offering, God rejected his. So what did he do? Killed him. Saul was jealous of David's military success. Saul was jealous that David was going to replace him as king. He spent 10 years chasing him down the desert trying to destroy him. Jealousy was the cause of the scribes and Pharisees' plot to kill Jesus because Jesus' crowds were bigger than theirs, Jesus was more popular than them, and they were so jealous and so envious that they arranged for the Romans to have him crucified. Anytime we're experiencing jealousy, it's because we're discontented with what God has provided. Right? We're discontented with what God has provided. Love is content with what God has provided. Does that make sense? Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. Love does not brag or boast. Love is not arrogance, what we're saying there. Arrogance and boasting are kind of the reverse side of jealousy. Jealousy is a sinful response to somebody else's success. Bragging is a sinful response to my success, right? Here's what bragging is. Bragging is simply blowing my own horn so you can be jealous of me. That's what bragging is, right? The root word for boasting is windbag. That's the Greek. For win it's windbag, right? And you all have some of these people in your life from time to time, right? You might work with them. You might be related to some of them. Boasting is blowing hot air about my success so I can cause you to be jealous of me, which is an equally sinful response as being jealous of somebody else in the first place, right? So boasting is ultimately taking credit for what I did not produce. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, a few chapters before, Paul's writing to them and he says, who regards you as superior? And the next two lines really stick in Brad's throat. What do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why are you boasting about it as if you had not received it? See, the Corinthians had forgotten that these spiritual gifts were just that. They were gifts, right? They didn't earn them. They were gifts. 
the very breath we breathe, the very heartbeat we have next are what? Gifts. You know, all of you being here today, it's a gift, right? It's a gift. This thing called life is a gift. I used to have a conversation with God, and this is years ago. I'd say, God, I earned this money. He said, well, where did you get the strength to get out of bed to go earn it? Oh, you mean, mean I'm dependent on that? Uh-huh, because I had friends that couldn't get out of bed to go to work. So the strength to go to work is a gift. Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man, very proud man. He took credit for God's blessings. In Daniel 4, he's walking around the hanging gardens at the top of the city, and he says this, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Who's that all about? Me, right? It's all about him. It's all about Nebuchadnezzar. It says immediately God took away his reason and his kingdom was taken away from him. See, the the Corinthians were boasting about their spiritual gifts and they forgot the gifts come from God and they're to be used to build others up, not to exalt yourself. So they were busy boasting and Paul says, love doesn't boast. If you had love, you wouldn't be bragging and boasting. Love does not act unbecomingly. That means it doesn't behave badly. Another word, I don't know what your translation says, love is not rude. How many of you have ever been to a supermarket or a restaurant and seen people behaving rudely? Any of you seen that? Our culture is increasingly becoming rude. The Corinthian church is really rude, uh, behaving badly. They participate uh, in pagan worship ceremonies. They get drunk at the Lord's Supper. They go visit prostitutes. So they're very much behaving badly. And rudeness repels people, love attracts people. And we, as bearers of the name of Christ, are to love people with Jesus' love so it attracts them to the Savior as opposed to repels people. And the Corinthian church is not behaving that way. Love does not seek its own. That's another way of saying love is not self-centered. Love is not selfish. Love does not insist on its own way. This is really, really tough. Love is not self-centered. The nature of us sinful humans is by definition sin is selfish. Yes? Love is unselfish. Love looks for ways to help other people. The Corinthian church, once again, was not. They were very self-centered. They said, we're going to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and if it causes you spiritual trouble, that's your problem. Right? Love doesn't behave that way. Love looks for ways to minister to other people because love is not self-centered. Philippians 2, 3, the Holy Spirit writes through Paul's handiwork, Paul's hand, do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing from empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Love looks out for the interests of another, not self-interest. In in today's vernacular, when someone says, I've got your back, what do you think that means? Someone says, I've got your back. It really means, I'm looking out for you. Where you can't see, I'm watching. I'm going to protect you. 
That's love. I'm looking out for your interests. Love is not provoked. Love doesn't lose its cool. Love doesn't blow a fuse. Here's one my father used to tell us five kids. Love doesn't have thin skin. You know anybody that's thin-skinned? Everything gets to them. Love is not easily provoked to anger. Love doesn't have meltdowns. Love doesn't throw temper tantrums. This Corinthian church has all that. They're picky, touchy, easily hurt, chip on the shoulder. They're divorcing their mates. They're going to court. They're name-calling. They were very prickly people, like porcupines. You ever try to pet a porcupine? I made a mistake one time. We were up in the mountains um, hiking, came across a dead porcupine, had been skinned out. Just the hide was there with the quills. And I thought, it's a dead porcupine. I'm going to pick up the hide. Not a good idea. Th those quills move even after there's just the hides laying there. Yeah, I had some... Some work getting the pliers and taking the quills out at that point in time. Love has a very high boiling point, not a low boiling point. With some people, you're always walking on eggshells. You know anybody like that? You're always kind of, kind of be careful with them because they're so prickly. They've got such a low boiling point. They get provoked real easy, right? They'll take their toys and go home and pout or they'll blow their stack. So just remember, love has a thick skin. Love has a thick skin. So when you look at that, you look in the mirror and you say, do I have a thick skin? How easily am I provoked? Right? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The vernacular for that is love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't keep score. Love doesn't keep track of all the wrongs that others have done to you. Some people refuse to forget, and years later they can recount in great detail how somebody done them wrong, right? 1975, B.J. Thomas, back in the day, recorded, yeah, 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 y'all know. Some of you vaguely remember. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he wrote a hit tune, or he sang a hit tune that says, hey, won't you play another Somebody done somebody wrong song, right? And make me feel at home. Wow. The church at Corinth was not only finding fault with each other, they were making lists of the faults. They were making a list, checking it twice, going to record who's naughty or nice, right? You know, that's not your job description, not my job description either. The Greek word for taking into account a wrong suffered is to log or to register. It's an accounting term. It implies that these Corinthians were making ledgers of each other's wrongs, making lists of where they had been hurt by another person. I bet they wrote those lists in ink too, didn't you? I bet they weren't in pencil. They were not only refusing to forgive each other, they were making sure they never forgot them either. Right? <clears throat> Love doesn't do that. Pastor Roger says in his premarital counseling, and he actually says in his wedding ceremonies, when you have a marital fight, don't get historical. <laughs> don't get hysterical either, but don't get historical. You can't go dredging up the past at this point in time. Story is told of Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross. 
One day she was reminded by a coworker of a very vicious deed that someone had done to her many years before. And Clara acted as if she'd never heard of the incident and the coworker said, don't you remember it? Clara replied, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. <laughs> See, forgiving and forgetting are choices choices. When someone says, I forgive you, but I can never forget. Baloney. I don't buy it. Now, you may have to choose to forget every day. You know who chooses to forget your wrongs every day? Jesus. Every day, Brad is a sinner. Every day I break the heart of my Savior because I rebel against his will. And he chooses to forgive and forget. He says, your sins are what? As far as the east is from the west. Your sins have been thrown into the depths of the ocean and there's no fishing signs. So choosing to forget. If you got a somebody done me wrong list someplace, tear it up, shred it, burn it. And when that comes back, surrender to the Lord. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love delights in the good, not the bad, the right, and the wrong. Love is never cynical. Love looks for the best in people, not the worst. Love doesn't listen to gossip or rumors. See, it's very easy for us to feel satisfaction when somebody else fails, especially if we're jealous of them, right? It makes us feel more equal when we feel them stumble. Unfortunately, we live in a culture today where our politics are so poisoned that many, many people feel anybody who disagrees with their position is evil incarnate. So when our, quote, enemies fail or the people that we disagree with fail, we think they've gotten what's coming to them and it brings us pleasure of some kind. They got what was coming to them, right? God says, no, I want you to look for the good. I want you to rejoice in truth, not in untruth. Philippians 4, we are commanded, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and of anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. You know what he's saying? Look for the good. Love looks for the good. It's always there. Love looks for it. Finally, verse 7. There are four things we can always expect from love. Four things. Love always bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love protects, love trusts, love hopes, and love perseveres. We're going to get to those. Love bears all things, love protects. The members of the Corinthian church were very quick to expose the sins of their fellow church members. If they messed up, they were the very first to broadcast it. Now, to bear or protect literally means to cover over or conceal. It refers to a roof over a building. We have a roof over here, right? And the roof over a building's job is what? To protect those inside the building from the attacks, from the weather, from the outside. So a roof protects. A roof conceals us from the weather. Love is a roof or a shelter that covers the sins of others, right? 
Love does not expose somebody else's faults. Love shields somebody else's faults. When you hear marriage partners criticize each other publicly, they are not protecting each other, they're exposing each other. That's not love. We have, all have faults, right? Amen. Say yes. yes. Love knows when to keep its mouth shut. Because your sins, you're hoping the people that love you will not broadcast them. When Noah got drunk, man of God, Grew a vineyard, got drunk, got hot, got naked inside his tent. His son Ham walks in, sees him, and goes out and broadcasts dad's failure to his other two brothers, Shem and Japheth. Love shields the faults of others. It says that Shem and Japheth put a blanket over their shoulders and walked backwards into the tent and covered their father up without looking at him. And their father blessed them and cursed Ham's line. Love shields the faults of others. It doesn't mean it refuses to accept the truth, but love shields the faults of others. Love also bears up under adversity. Love never collapses under the weight of bad news. Love never falls apart. Love never says, I can't handle this. Love never says, I quit. Job's wife told him to do what? Give it up. Curse God and die. And Job is thinking, well, if I curse God and I die, where am I going? I suspect that place is worse than this place. Right? So he says, well, are you kidding? God's God, good God. He's going to give us what we need at that point. Of that. Love refuses to cave in and quit. So love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love keeps the faith. Love never stops believing God's word is true. Love is not suspicious. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. Love believes the best about people. If you love your spouse, you trust them. If you love your children, you trust them, right? We know that intuitively. Ultimately, you love God the most, so you trust him the most. How many years did Abraham wait for God's promise of a son? God told him, you're going to have a son. How many years did he wait? He was 75 when he got the promise. He was 100 when Isaac was born. That's a long time to believe. Would he have believed God if he didn't love God? Pretty hard to believe somebody you don't love, right? Pretty hard to believe. The more you love, the more you trust. Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things. Hope is always future-oriented, future-oriented. Hope refuses to accept failure as final. Hope always looks forward to the ultimate victory. And the truth is we hope for what we really love. The story of Jacob is an interesting story. Jacob, who is a deceiver, goes to Laban, his mother's brother, and they take him in and he's going to work seven years because he loves Rachel, the younger daughter. And in that day, you veiled everybody up, right, before the wedding night. So he says he wakes up in the morning of his honeymoon, and it's Leah, the older daughter, not the younger daughter. He, the double-crosser, has been double-crossed, right? The liar's been lied to. And it says he's so furious, he goes back to Laban and says, I contracted seven years of labor to marry Rachel, and you gave me Leah. And he says, well, you always, you always marry the older one before you marry the younger one. Live with it. But if you work for me another seven years, you can have Rachel. 
And it says he was so in love with Rachel that the seven years seemed like a few days. Wow, now that's love, right? Oh, he also was probably younger than most of us, right? Today, seven years of labor is a lot of labor. So it says the time seemed to fly by. His love gave him hope. It also gave him endurance, right? That's the picture here. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, love endures all things. Endurance has to do with the duration of a trial. Have you ever noticed that some problems are very intense, but short-lived? I don't like trials at all, but I would rather have the short-lived ones. Some problems in your life right now, you will live with how long? The rest of your life. By God's infinitely wise plan, there are problems that we have that he is not going to take away. It says love endures. Love lasts. Love runs the marathon of life all the way to the finish line. I'm going to encourage us to keep our eyes open on this church campus. Nothing in my mind is more encouraging than seeing elderly couples actively loving each other. Till death do us part. We have an older guy here at church. I don't know if I can get through this, but his wife died several years ago. Everywhere she was, he was, because he pushed her in a wheelchair. And their love was as obvious as the sunlight. I mean, it just radiated out of them. And she died a pretty painful death. And he loved her, and she loved him. And that's the love of Jesus. Open your eyes, it's all around. Love endures all things. Love stays in the race until the finish line. Paul's now described love, 15 characteristics. Now he says, I'm going to tell you that love is superior to every spiritual gift because love outlasts them all. Verse 8, love never fails. You want to underline something, that's a pretty good one. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they're going to be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, they will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Here's the principle. Love is infinitely valuable because love is eternal. Don't trade your life for anything less. You're all swapping 24 hours a day for something. Make sure you're getting love for your time. Love never falls and fails to get up again. Love never collapses. Love never dies. Love never ends. Love is the pink bunny in the battery commercial, right? That keeps going and keeps going and keeps going, that never quits. Love is inexhaustible. The more love you give away, the more love you have to give away. Love is like trying to drain the ocean with a teaspoon. Love is never going to run out, right? Love is like bailing water out of a small boat with a hole in the bottom. There's always going to be more water, right? So love is not something you need to hoard. Love is something you should give away because the more you give, the more you have to give. Paul's talking about the three favorite gifts that the Corinthians covet, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And he says, all of them are going to end. All spiritual gifts are going to end. When Jesus comes back, 
and ushers his kingdom onto earth, you will not need prophecy. The future is now present. The gift of prophecy is going away. You won't need to speak or pray in tongues. You're going to be face to face with Jesus. You don't need some prayer language. The gift of tongues will disappear. The gift of knowledge will disappear when Jesus comes back because everyone will have a face-to-face -face perfect knowledge of God. So he's saying, look, I know you guys worship and you love these spiritual gifts. They're temporary, all of them. But love is eternal because God is love. Love will exist for all eternity. In this life, he says, everything is incomplete. Everything is partial because this earth will pass away. But when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns and sin is no more, you won't need any spiritual gifts, but you will need love. Verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I've been fully known. How many of you have seen the Disney movie Toy Story at least three or four times? Okay, one, two, three, four, yeah, all right. When Andy was younger, he thought his cowboy doll, Woody, was everything. The truth is, the toys of childhood get exchanged for the bigger toys of adulthood. Right? In light of heaven, everything on earth except love will be viewed as a childhood toy. The city of Corinth, by the way, was famous for their metal mirrors. They didn't have glass mirrors, but they had polished metal mirrors. So Paul uses, he says, we see in a glass dimly. He's talking about looking at a metal mirror. You know where you find a metal mirror today? In the highway rest stops. Right? You go on the interstate, you get to a highway rest stop. They don't put glass in there because glass breaks and people break it. They put metal mirrors in. And when you look in that metal mirror, what kind of an image do you get back other than terrifying? Right? It's like when you wake up in the morning, you go, oh, that's not me, right? Paul says, when you're here on earth, we see things dimly, like looking in a metal mirror. You get, it's distorted, it's incomplete, it's dim. It's just, but when you get to heaven, you'll see everything clearly and completely. We'll know God intimately just the way he knows us now. He says, don't spend your life chasing childish things because... They have a distorted view of life. I want you to think about the eternal. And love is eternal. And then verse 13, he summarizes this before Tom comes. And he says, but now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And here's the principle. God's love grows in our hearts or grows in our lives as we obey his word and serve others. God's love grows in our hearts as we obey his word and serve others. Paul says, faith, hope, and love, all three will abide throughout eternity, but the greatest of these is love. So the question we should have is, okay, how do I get this love? You've given us a description of love. You've given us a character trait of love. You've given us the eternality of love. You've given us the indispensable nature of love, the irresistible nature of love. How do I get this love? This is supernatural love. When you look at this description, this is not human love. This is divine love. This is God's love. And God's love is not acquired. God's love is bestowed. For God so loved the world that he gave. So we have God's love because he bestowed it on us. 
in Christ. The supernatural love in this chapter is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's an outgrowth of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the first one? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. There's nine of them, but love is the first one. So this supernatural love in this chapter is the natural outflow of the Holy Spirit in your life. And where there's a healthy root, there is abundant fruit. Love is a fruit. So if there's no love in your life, you can't say, well, I got to go work on this. I got to go dredge up some love. I'm going to be more loving tomorrow. That's not what he's talking about. Pay attention to the root and the fruit of love will overflow in your life because this love is not human. I'm going to try harder love. This fruit is supernatural. This is the love that only Jesus Christ can produce. And John 15 would be a good study chapter for you because he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he or she does what? Bears much fruit. So we say, well, I got to produce the fruit. No, you can't produce the fruit. You abide in the vine. You keep that life-giving connection with Jesus Christ, the source of your life and the source of your love. And the spiritual fruit of love grows on the vine called Jesus. The problem is if we don't stay connected with Jesus, the branch dries up and we go, how come there's no love in my life? Go back to the source. Go back to the source. Go back to the vine. Make sure you're connected to the vine. Interestingly enough, John 15, 10 says, when you obey my words, you will abide in my love. So the key to abiding is obedience. When we obey God's word, we abide in his love. When we abide in his, his love, then his love flows through us. Does that make sense? Okay. That's why we said God's love grows in our lives as we obey his word and serve others. Okay, before Tom comes, let's give a review. And I don't have to say that most of us look at this and go, this is exciting, but Brad, it's also exhausting. I mean, this is that unbelievable amount of material to cover in 45 minutes. It's a lifetime of practical application and the Holy Spirit will show us how to do that. Point one, love is the indispensable ingredient in the life of every Christian. There is no substitute for love. No matter what else you have, if you don't have love, remember the Tom Jones song years ago, without love, I'm nothing. Engelbert Humperdinck sang it. It's a really good song. Number two, love is the unmistakable brand mark of those who follow Jesus. Our love for the Lord reveals, our love for others reveals our Savior's love for the world. Number three, love is infinitely valued because love is eternal. Don't trade your life for anything less. And last and probably most important, talks about the way to obtain that love. God's love grows in our lives as we obey his word and serve others. And now that you know, do.